0: Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pot Save the People on this episode with me, Brittany, Clint, and Sam. Clint isn't with us as we record, so his news is separate, as you'll see, but he's here. And I'm joined by Grammy Award-winning artist PJ Morton. He is the keyboardist from Room 5, as you might know, and he is a solo artist as well, and he has a
1: new album called Paul. We're fighting and we feel the pressure and we're going through what feels like a dark time in the world, but also we have loved ones and we want to have a good time and we want to be entertained. So I think the album is really a reflection of where a lot of people are in life and the balance of what we deal with on a day-to-day basis. My advice for
0: this week is about a seat at the table. There's been a lot of news in popular culture about the value of a seat at the table. That, you know what, some people have enough money and privilege to have a seat at the table and they should be able to do what they want. And here's the thing is it's a reminder that the only reason that the seat exists at the table in the first place is because people fought for it. People pressed, people demanded, people challenged. Most of the biggest tables in the world don't create seats for people from marginalized identities out of the goodness of their heart, out of some sense of altruism or benevolence. They do it because they had to. So when you get a seat at the table, your responsibility is to fight and push and challenge. Like, the seat only exists because people did that in the first place. So to do anything other than walk into the room with a set of demands, to do anything other than walk into the room with that same spirit that created the space initially is to do a disservice.
2: Let's go. What's going on, everybody? This is Clint. And for my news, I wanted to share a short story, but one that really left me seething this past week. Uh, It was reported in the Washington Post, and it's about a woman named Diana Sanchez who gave birth to her baby inside of a Denver County jail cell when no one came to help. Um, So the story talks about how Miss Sanchez was screaming as she writhed on the small bed inside of her cell. Uh, According to the federal lawsuit, which was filed last week, Sanchez gave birth to her son alone in her cell without medical supervision or treatment, despite repeatedly telling the jail staff that she was having contractions and had been doing so for hours. The suit alleges that instead of, quote, ensuring that Miss Sanchez was able to give birth in a safe and sanitary medical setting, nurses and deputies callously made her labor alone for hours forcing her to endure horrific experience that was incredibly painful. A spokesperson for the Sheriff's Department told the Washington Post that they took the appropriate actions, quote, under the circumstances and followed the relevant policies and procedures, though in a follow-up statement said, to make sure this doesn't happen again, the Denver Sheriff Department is going to change its policies to ensure that pregnant inmates who are in any stage of labor are now transported immediately to the hospital, which is wild that that would be a policy that you have to now implement and the idea that you would not immediately transfer somebody to the hospital when they begin having contractions and after their water breaks is absurd to me and reflective Again, of uh, how prisons and jails treat human beings as if they are not human beings. The Washington Post goes on to talk about a scene where Sanchez's mouth is wide open as she's screaming, and you can see this through the videos. And within seconds, a small baby tumbles out onto the bed, and only then does somebody wearing surgical gloves come into the cell. Uh, they appear to examine the infant, gently patting the baby's back a few times, but it still takes more than 30 minutes. For Sanchez and her baby to be sent to the hospital. And and this touched me and touched a nerve in a really deep way, because as you all know, I have two kids. I have a two-year-old, I have a six-month old. And my wife had some really complicated pregnancies both times, and I'm sharing that with her permission. And we were so fortunate to be in a hospital. We were so fortunate to be surrounded by medical supervision. And it was still, both of those were some of the scariest experiences of my life and so I can't even imagine the fear. I can't even imagine the the trauma. I can't even imagine the pain that this woman was experiencing as she gave birth to her child inside of a jail cell without any help while she was screaming and people stood by and did nothing. And I wanted to share this just because again, I think it's really important that we understand that jails and prisons are terrible terrible Places. And I think the social function of them is predicated on a sense of isolation so that we're not able to see or understand what's going on inside of these places. But it's really important that we illuminate these things that so many of these spaces are trying to prevent us from knowing. And I wanted to bring this story to y'all's attention because I think it is reflective of a much larger problem that we have in our prison system. And we talk about this all the time. But this story, particularly, was so enraging to me. Um, And there's a lot of work that we need to do to make sure that no woman ever experiences this sort of thing ever again.
3: Hey y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Pacnet at Miss yeti on all social media.
4: And this is Sam Sonyangwe at sam's way on Twitter.
0: This is Duray at D I Y on Twitter.
3: So first off, we are obviously sending our prayers and continuing to watch the situation in Midland, Texas, where there was a shooting with several people injured and at least one dead as of Um, The last time I looked, most importantly, we'll be continuing to press the Senate in particular to take action on this. I think we can all remember that Governor Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, famously tweeted a couple of years ago that he was upset that Texas was number two in the country in buying guns and encouraged Texans to buy more. That tweet has not been deleted because I responded to it yesterday. And the callous attitude Republicans are continuing to take toward this issue is creating a stall in any progress. It's incredibly scary and disappointing.
4: You know, it's been six months since the House passed a universal background check bill. By the way, universal background checks have more than 90% support from the American people in polling data, which is like the most popular policy ever. And still, this is sitting on Mitch McConnell. He has refused to take this up in the Senate. And in the meantime, we have seen mass shooting after mass shooting after mass shooting and Congress still in recess. They're not even debating gun control at this point. And it's just, you know, a complete abdication of responsibility, a complete abdication of doing their job for Republicans in Congress and for Mitch McConnell in particular. So, you know, I'm hopeful that there will be renewed and amplified pressure being put on Mitch McConnell because this is all in his hands to be he has the power to fix this. He has the power to bring this to a vote. And again, you know, this is something that if he was doing his job would have already passed. Now, what's interesting, too, is that we
0: think about Texas and uh, for all of the thoughts and prayers that Governor Abbott continues to offer that is not coupled with any substantive change. On September 1st, a set of laws go into practice in Texas. Let me just give you a rundown of them. There's House Bill 1143 that says that a school district can't prohibit licensed gun owners, including school employees, from storing a firearm or ammunition in a locked vehicle in a school parking lot as long as it's not in plain view. Uh, there's another bill, 1387, that loosens restrictions on armed marshals that a school district can appoint. House Bill 2363 allows some foster cares to store firearms and ammunition in a place. There's another law that bans homeowners and landlords on rental properties from prohibiting residents from carrying uh, guns. There's another law that prohibits residents from being charged with a crime for carrying a handgun while evacuating a state or a local disaster area. And then there's a whole other law, Senate Bill 535, that clarifies the possession of firearms at churches, synagogues, or other places of worship. And it essentially allows licensed handgun owners to legally carry their weapons in places of worship. So, on the heels of this shooting in Texas, literally the next day, There are a set of laws that make guns more permissible in the state, not less permissible. And it is this question of, like, what will it take for there to be some sensible gun control? You know, like, it clearly isn't tragedy. And these elected officials should not be elected. Like, there has to be some consequence for them in electoral politics.
4: And like you mentioned, Dure, I mean, these bills that go into effect now in Texas are almost egregiously and obscenely focused on making it easier to bring guns into schools and places of worship, which are targets of choice for mass shooters. It's almost as if the bills themselves were designed to encourage or make it easier to engage In the very conduct that legislators should be actually seeking to stop. So it's not only sort of a neglect or abdication of duty from legislators, but it seems like folks in the Republican Party are committed to doing everything within their power to make this issue even worse.
3: And from Midland, Texas to Memphis, Tennessee, continuing to see incredibly disappointing actions coming out around the mayor's race there. There are three main candidates. One of them is a friend of the pod, Tammy Sawyer, young Black woman who led the fight to take down Confederate statues in Memphis alongside many others and won that fight. She is running for mayor. She's currently a county commissioner and Memphis Magazine, a local magazine magazine decided to put caricatures of all three candidates on the front cover of their September edition. Um, There are two men in the race. Tammy is the only woman. She's not the only person of color, but her caricature in particular drew a lot of ire from her fellow Memphians. They felt that the caricature was not in keeping with not just what she looks like, but not in keeping with remaining respectful of black women. And it actually drew on a lot of the sexist and racist tropes that black women have endured over a long time when the artist was pressed on it he responded and forgive the quote but it is a direct quote that she was monstrously obese and that he had actually traced the image in order to put it on the front cover what's wild here is that you're either admitting that you're a terrible artist because you trace things to begin with or that you have absolute intent and cannot stand your subject and the art ended up reflecting that either way it was deeply inappropriate i was really disgusted by the image and have been watching Tammy endure so much crap being a black woman running for office in the South. It was incredibly disappointing to see. I'm glad to see that a lot of people are now aware of Tammy and have been supporting her, but it is wild that in 2019, this is still a conversation.
4: Whenever this happens, there are so many questions about how many people saw this and let this run despite the obvious problems with depicting somebody like this in such a public and egregious way. And so I think the entire paper needs to do some, you know, soul searching and introspection and not only hold the artist, quote unquote, artist, I guess, you know, not only holding him accountable, but the publication as a whole needs to figure out what's going on so that this doesn't happen again.
0: And, you know, this was definitely a choice. And in Memphis, There is an establishment that has been deeply rooted that is fighting against any challenge at every step of the way. So even a half-hearted apology or acknowledgement that they wrote, it's like they knew exactly what they were doing. And the whole point was to to depict Tammy in a way that would lead to the culling of racist undertones. And they did it, you know? And they know that no amount of an apology or no amount of, you know, we are so sorry and we didn't mean to do it like that actually can't undo what they already did. And that's sort of the worst thing about this is that, like, this wasn't a mistake. There's no way that you just like randomly do a cover like that. Like Brittany said, there's no way that you randomly use language like that, especially in a city that's like overwhelmingly black, like the politics of race are so present. And, like, I do hope that there's some accountability. And I also hope that
4: voters see
0: through this for
4: exactly what it was.
3: And now the news.
4: So my news is focused on Phoenix. The city of Phoenix is currently going through a crisis of police violence. If you haven't heard, in 2018, Phoenix Police Department led the nation in police shootings, where there were 44 police shootings, 23 people killed by Phoenix Police Department. That is one in every five homicides committed in the city were committed by the police in Phoenix last year. And in response to the crisis that all of this violence has generated, the city has sought to develop a method for effectively using data to predict which officers will commit misconduct next. Yes, you can use data to predict which officers will commit misconduct next because those officers often have a track record of previous misconduct that can be used to identify who they are and to get them off the force before they shoot the next person. The problem is in Phoenix... It turns out that because the city signed a police union contract that allows officers after every three years to have their misconduct records purged and sent to a quote-unquote inactive file in human resources that the police department doesn't have access to when evaluating the records of police officers, the city has realized that they actually can't use data to identify which officers those are because they've already agreed to Erase the data that's required to do that type of analysis. So this is an issue that's not unique in Phoenix. Back in 2015, when we looked at police union contracts in the 100 largest cities in America, we found that the majority of cities that have such contracts actually have provisions in those contracts that either allow or even require portions of officers' disciplinary and misconduct records to be purged or expunged or, in cases like Chicago, destroyed after a set number of years. But what this investigation by Arizona Central does is actually seeks to quantify the extent to which a provision like this in a police union contract actually can impact the entire ability of a city to track misconduct within a department. They actually got access to two sets of records. So the first are the records held by the police department. You'll recall that the contract requires, after three years, that those records be purged, and the only documentation of those records That remains is actually within the human resources department, which is stored separately and that the department doesn't have access to when reviewing police officers' misconduct histories during an investigation. So what the newspaper did was they also got access to the human resources data. And by cross-referencing the two data sets, they found that there were over 600 incidents of misconduct that had been erased. Not only that, but When you look at the scope of this, it's 90% of all sustained complaints of misconduct during this period, 90% of those records were erased within the department. Now, we study this issue for, we've been studying it for years, I think 90% is like a wild figure, and I think this goes to show the extent to which police union contracts and the things that cities are negotiating with police unions often behind the scenes can have a huge impact on the entire accountability process uh, and the ability of either police departments or community oversight structures to effectively hold police accountable.
3: I think that these are the kind of in the weeds, highly detailed moments that we really have to pay attention to. And I know I say that we have to be vigilant and pay attention every week, but that's because it's true. The fact of the matter is we want to be able to have radical conversations and reimagine what safety looks like in our communities. We want to be able to get to the point where we can truly say, do we need a police department at all? What would public safety look like with a completely different group of people who are provided authority in a completely different way and actually not arming those people, right? Which is in existence in other countries, but... In the meantime, as we imagine all of that, as we get radical, as we get imaginative, as we dream the big dreams and talk about the things that are impossible on the pathway to the impossible things, we have to continue to be clear about how much needs to change in the here and now. And it is those detailed things. It is that stuff that's all in the weeds. And it absolutely has to do with accountability and transparency. If we do not know how these contracts are being negotiated and what ends up in them, then there are so many ways, many of which we have already enumerated in Campaign Zero, that can actually hinder the people's ability to seek and retain justice. These things matter. And at the end of the day, we need to know what police officers were guilty of before. We can go back and look at all of the folks who have across the country who have committed egregious acts as police officers. And then we come to find out weeks, sometimes months, sometimes years later, that they were guilty of awful misconduct that should have gotten them off the force, that should have gotten them clearly disciplined in some way, either by a civilian oversight board or simply by the department that they worked for. And because those things are able to be hidden, we see folks on the force who are making terrible decisions and terrible judgment calls every single day and harming real people. So this is the stuff we have to pay attention to.
0: You know, we did the big Campaign Zero study in 2015 where we uncovered things like this in police union contracts across the country. And I will never forget. And, you know, we talk about this internally sometimes is people sort of thought it was interesting when we did it in 2015, but it was sort of the like, you know, when the kid in class does that project on that thing and you're like, oh, that's really cute. Like that's sort of how people treated it when we did it in 2015. And now people are like, oh my goodness, the structure really matters. And we're like, we tried to, like we were in 2015, we were trying to say that like, we don't think that the solutions that people are talking about the most publicly, right? So like implicit bias, body cameras, we think those things might be a factor, but we think the structural things actually matter way more than anybody's paying attention to. So it's good now that people are like getting to the party around it. I think that what is sort of hard is that we should be paying attention to the structural things even when the city isn't the city that kills the most people right like it shouldn't take a city like phoenix to be the most deadly city with regard to police violence for local reporters suddenly to be like hey i think we should think about this it's like this stuff has been happening in cities for such a long time and it's so sad that some of the most Interesting investigative journalism only happens on the heels of tragedy, not because they can't do it otherwise, not because the information's not there, not because there isn't a problem, but because people, even in the media, only pay attention when, like, the crisis has reached some obscene level. And that is often when the crisis impacts communities of color at obscene levels, because it takes many, many examples for people to believe that something might be wrong. The second thing is that these sort of clauses are everywhere. And, you know, our study initially focused on the 100 biggest cities. We've expanded it to include some places in California. We have a couple hundred, uh, three, four, 500 more contracts to do, but there are 18,000 police departments in the country. And we have not done a study of 18,000 rules. And I say that because wherever you are, you are smart enough, have the power, and can get a copy of the contract for your police department and look it over. We'd love to help you if we've not looked it over yet the way the status quo sort of works is that it wants you to believe that you are not smart enough to understand these things and you are like you are smart enough to call city council members call the mayor and like fight them about these things and let me tell you not a lot of people calling city council members these days so fight y'all like it's the structural things that allow the bad things to happen don't go anywhere more politics the people's coming
3: So the Federal Election Commission, it has been barely functional for a number of years now, but we find ourselves in a particularly precarious position with the Federal Election Commission, and here's why. By law, the commission is supposed to have six members, one retired in 2017, another retired in 2018, and a Republican member, just retired this month. That leaves three members, a Republican, a Democrat, and an independent left, falling one member short of the quorum that is necessary for the commission to function as intended. Here's what the commission still can do. They can still investigate claims of malfeasance uh, in federal elections. They can still post the results and the information involved in their investigations online. And the staff at the commission will continue to do their work. But here's what can't happen. There can be no decisions made about any of those investigations that have any kind of official authority whatsoever because the commissioners will be unable to vote on the results of the investigation. The commission also cannot provide advice and answer questions to campaigns. They cannot issue any new fundraising rules, which is critically important the more that corporate dollars continue to be involved in politics. They can issue no punishments and no disciplines because, again, those require a vote and a vote requires a quorum. Perhaps most importantly, and most scary, they cannot respond to the threats of foreign interference that we are already dealing with in the election. So there can be no new rules about the truthfulness of internet ads, for instance, so the proliferation of things like fake news can't be tamped down by a three-person federal election commission. It is the job of Mitch McConnell to appoint new members of the federal election commission, and unsurprisingly, there has been no indication that he feels any sense of urgency to do it whatsoever. If he did, the seats that went vacant in 2017 and 2018 would have already been taken care of. But most certainly, as we are entering the 2020 election, as we are dealing with an election that has an unprecedented amount of money already flowing into it, you would think that he would have some urgency now. But of course, if there's no urgency now, then we don't actually have to worry about the watchdog of federal elections having any power whatsoever. They're completely impotent at this point. And that's something that happened really quietly and suddenly we looked up and realized the Federal Election Commission can't do anything with three members, which they now have. I'm really scared about this, given all of the disenfranchisement that we saw in the midterm elections, given the things that we saw in Florida and Georgia and all over, given the ways in which Russian bots are already pushing conversations that have been damning in the amounts of misinformation and disinformation that they're putting out there. This is something that we should be incredibly worried about. About, and that we should be calling Mitch McConnell's office about every single day until he does something
4: I'm not surprised. I wish i I were surprised, but you know Mitch McConnell really has been doing the most to do the least. He has not been interested at all in securing the country from gun violence in securing the country from election hacking. mind you, there is an election security bill that passed the House still waiting on being brought up in the Senate because of Mitch McConnell, while we have an election coming up, a major presidential election coming up next year. And this is just part of that pattern of completely using every tool at his disposal to obstruct, to deny the American people an opportunity to defend themselves against hacking, against electoral interference, against massively wealthy people, not only within the United States, but across the world who are seeking to influence the election and deny voters the opportunity to actually have a voice in shaping the government moving forward. Um, So, I mean, this is disappointing. Mitch McConnell needs to be voted out of office as do his enablers, as does this administration.
0: When I saw this, I was like, who is Peterson? Like, who is this Matthew Peterson guy? And I realized that I knew his face. I was like, why do I know his face? And you know his face, too, because he went viral because Trump nominated him to be a judge. And he was that guy who, like, had never done anything in court before. So let me remind you of the transcript, everybody. Senator Kennedy goes, he starts by saying, Mr. Peterson, have you ever tried a jury trial? Peterson goes, I have not. Civil? Peterson, no. Criminal? No. Bench? No, state or federal court. I have not. Okay, have you ever taken a deposition? I was involved in taking depositions when I was associate at Wally Rain when I first came out of law school, but that was how many depositions? I'd be struggling to remember. Less than 10? Yes. Less than five? Probably somewhere in that range. Have you ever taken a deposition by yourself? No. Have you ever argued a motion in state court? I have not. Have you ever argued a motion in federal court? I have not. And it is just like, what is happening, you know?
3: And to be clear, Peterson is the Republican member that has most recently resigned. Yes,
0: Peterson's resignation is what's causing this crisis on the FEC all of a sudden. I bring that up because... One, the quality of the people in these seemingly administrative bureaucratic roles really matters. And this guy, questionably qualified in general, certainly not qualified to be on the court. And if you look, you know, if you Google him and you read the interviews that he's done later, he's like, you know, I shouldn't be judged for my worst moment on the Internet. And you're like, "Uh, buddy, you should be judged for your shocking lack of knowledge around, you know, anything pertaining to legal proceedings. And you thought you were qualified to be a judge. It's also a reminder and we talk about this a lot and like, we get joked a lot around some of the focus on systems. But like this is a great example of what happens when they can't do like any enforcement, no new rules. There'll still be a staff sort of grinding around, but all the power, all the enforcement power is literally going to halt. And you probably haven't even heard this on the news. Like this is like not even like a top 10, 20, 30, 40 story, you know? And it's these sort of things that when the Republicans are like they're a party of small government, it's like they actually aren't a party of small government. They are a party of a government that cannot hold them accountable. They want it to be big enough to write a check to anything they care about and small enough to allow them to go unregulated. That is what they want, you know, and this plays into that. I cannot wait until Mitch McConnell loses and I can't wait. I hope that when the Democrats come to power, that like we undo all their damage in like 30 days. And it is like we passed the most intense legislation so quick that the Republicans have whiplash with how quickly we have decided to make a commitment to real people. My news is about Arpaio. So he was a sheriff in Maricopa County in Arizona. If you remember it, he had more than five terms as sheriff. He ran the infamous tent city that was outdoor tents that he housed immigrants in and a hundred degree plus temperatures. They had color coded towels and all this other ridiculous stuff. We covered Tent City, I don't know, 50, 80 episodes ago or something like that. But I bring him up because if you remember it, he was charged with contempt of court for having ignored a federal judge's order to stop arresting immigrants solely on suspicion that they were in the country illegally. He was convicted and then he was pardoned by President Trump. And Trump said that he admired Arpaio's work, quote, protecting the public from the scourges of crime and illegal immigration. So finally, there's an instance of a bad guy in government being held accountable. Trump pardons him. And what does he do when he gets out? Mind you, Arpaio is like 87. He gets out and he's like, I'm running for sheriff again. And it's like, remember, he lost that election for sheriff. He lost. He lost. He's running again. And it's like, they are just relentless in their pursuit of the most evil things that we could do to people, you know? And I bring this up because I forgot all about the fact that he got pardoned. Like, I just forgot about that. And, you know, there's so much to keep track of with Trump. But the second is because sheriffs are like this interesting role in cities that people just don't pay attention to. I didn't before the movement began. And the sheriff just has so much power in so many places. Like, they do things like, housing enforcement, so like evictions in a lot of places, they run the jail in a lot of places, they do all the courtroom they actually have um, warrants, they do so much that like if we are going to change the criminal justice system if we're going to actually have justice like be in people's lives, like that role will have to be a part of it as it stands today as long as it exists and it really matters and he would be the worst thing I'm hopeful that the voters who voted against him when he lost the last time are still awake and they... Will not let him win again.
3: It is interesting to me that in his press conference to announce his candidacy, he said, and I quote, Watch out, world, we are back. If that's not a statement that perfectly encapsulates exactly how white supremacy is functioning in 2019, I don't know what is. What he's basically saying is, hey, the coast was not clear for him to operate and behave in the way he wanted to in Maricopa County when the Obama administration was in charge, as exemplified by the action they took against him. But now that a friend of white supremacy is back in the White House, now that the conversation around white supremacy has found a comfortable landing space, now that it is time for folks like me to rise, I'm back. Here I am, ready to do the work. I was stunned by that uh, in a way that I probably shouldn't have been, but it's such a clear statement and clear recognition that the conditions are right and ripe for someone like him to be in power again. He's also nearly 90 years old. So politics aside, beliefs aside, ideologies aside, the person who is in charge of law enforcement uh, in an entire county being someone who is that up in age may not be the wisest idea especially if he's got a history like this guy.
4: This guy was the sheriff in Maricopa County for 24 years, from 1993, when I was three years old, through 2017, when he was defeated by Democrat Paul Penson. So 24 years he was in this position. During that time, he accumulated a massive track record of civil rights violations, human rights violations, building this tent city, which was a massive human rights disaster for undocumented folks, for folks who were targeted by his department. You know, I think we have to think differently about what the role of Sheriff, if there is to be a role whatsoever, actually should be. And you know, why aren't there term limits? Why aren't there accountability structures and oversight structures that are able to actually monitor and hold sheriffs accountable so that we are not in a situation where somebody like this can be in office for, 24 years finally get defeated and then just get right back in and run again because there are no term limits at the age of almost 90 you know this is a structural problem just as much as it is an individual problem with joe arpaio
0: that's the news and now my conversation with grammy award winning artist pj morton pj thanks so much for joining us today on pate the people
1: yes good to be here man
0: let's talk about you have a new project coming out
1: yeah uh, August 9th the album dropped called Paul and uh, I'm excited about it and why Paul is this a biblical reference it's not no it's my name I'm Paul jr. and uh, you know it's a couple of levels to it and I think it was one that I didn't even realize but it kind of showed me how free I am now but it's my name it's the the name that I came into the world with Um, of course my parents, my whole family, everybody calls me PJ. My wife calls me Paul, uh, but not many people call me Paul. But I just felt like um, in my pursuit to like be as pure as possible in my art, in the sense that I really wanted to make whatever moves me, not what I strategically think might work on the radio or might help me sell records, but just genuinely trying to make what I feel and have that just be enough. I thought that Paul was a cool way to say that, that I'm just getting down to my purest form, the the name that I came into the world with. But what I just realized was, you know, for so long, I lived in the shadows of my father, who is a huge pastor. And um,
0: I know that's why I asked. I was like, I thought it was Paul because of your family.
1: Oh, no, no, no. Well, I mean, yeah, in in a way, but I guess I would have never named an album Paul 10 years ago, because I'm like, I don't want people to be thinking Paul Morton, you know, because that's my dad, because I wasn't thinking of that at all when I decided to name it this. But um, it kind of shows me that I'm okay with with everything. You know, it's like I'm just super comfortable in my skin more than I've ever been. That shows me that to myself, really.
0: How did growing up in the church shape the way you thought about the music that you would put out in the world?
1: Um, well, I know it shaped it in the sense of like there was always a kind of a threshold that I didn't want to go past, you know, as far as content was concerned. Like it never was my vibe anyway, but that's probably because of my upbringing. But I never want to go crazy talking about like even if I talk about love or making love. I never wanted to get graphic really. That didn't appeal to me. Just as a songwriter in general, I just felt like, I feel like it's easy sometimes, you know, to just go straight to it as opposed to writing in a way that makes people think just a little bit more. Um, even if you are talking about that. So I think it shaped me there for sure. And just the brand of who I felt like I wanted to be, I always wanted to bridge the gap because usually when R&B singers became R&B singers, because they're almost, I'd say 98% from church, right? R&B singers are. But it's usually after they're mad at the church and they want to get as far away as possible. So the music reflects that and it just... It's as wild as it can be versus me where I kind of, I got the shots and I got the, you know, I felt those things when I decided that I wasn't going to be a gospel artist, but I wasn't hurt and and mad about it. It was more of me feeling sorry for people who I felt like didn't have a full understanding of what I was doing and what music and what this gift was in general, like just all together, how big it could be, how big God can be, you know, and all his creations and to limit him to this one genre was just something that I didn't want to run away and just be mad. I wanted to, like, show people another way. That's what I focused on.
0: I love it. And how would you describe this album to people who haven't heard it yet or who know you so much from the song that won the Grammy, How Deep Is Your Love?
1: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it is still very much me, you know, in the sense that the foundation is always going to be built in soul music, where there's still pop sensibilities. I just love choruses that people can sing, you know, that's a very pop song type of thing. So I'm I'm always gonna be that. And I think the subject matter, I think gumbo, had less to do with love. I was at a point where I left California, moved back home to New Orleans and really just uh wanted to get away from everything that I was doing prior to. So it was really about me speaking about creative freedom and the division in the country, just other things. I had a song on there called Religion, where I dealt with religion. This album is more half and half. There are love songs. They're Built for Love with Jasmine Sullivan, Say So with JoJo. You got Don't Break My Heart, which is the same type of thing. But then you have Buy Back the Block and you have uh, Don't Let Go. And so I think it's a mixture. You even got Angela Rye on the album. I even got Angela on the end of 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 MAGA, question mark. Yeah, so I went there half and half, you know, and I think this is kind of the dichotomy of what most of us are. We're fighting and we feel the pressure and we're going through what feels like a dark time in the world. But also we have loved ones and we want to have a good time and we want to be entertained. So I think the album is really a reflection of where a lot of people are in life and the balance of what we deal with on a day to day basis.
0: You know, I was surprised to hear Jasmine because I haven't heard her put out music in so long that when I saw her and heard her on your album, I was like, okay, PJ, okay, Jasmine.
1: Yeah, we actually recorded it a while ago and I put it out online, but I'd never actually released it. Kind of like Drake Care Package. (laughs) But people who knew it from like YouTube and SoundCloud, they kept asking for that song over and over and I was going to put it on Gumbo and it didn't fit. And uh, it finally fit this album and I went back to Jasmine and asked her, if I could put it on and she was down. Um, but we all <laughs> we all want music from Jasmine right now. You know what I'm saying? I think we're ready. That voice is incredible. Yeah, it's why well, she's one of my favorite singers in the in the whole world, you know? So anytime I can collab with her, I wanna do that. And we're all rooting for her to put out another project. And how did you link with JoJo? Yeah, that was kinda I met JoJo years ago. Um I always loved her singing. She was in a situation with her label and couldn't really record music. So I think it was just a timing thing out right at the time where I was knowing that I wanted to make say so a duet. She just came across my eyesight again, I guess, because she had re-released all her stuff that her label wouldn't release. She re-recorded it and re- got it reproduced. And I just thought that was brilliant And I was just happy for her and proud of her, you know, especially as an independent person, for her to just get what she deserved. And for me, that was like, hey, well, you want to sing this? (laughs) You know, you want to sing this with me? And then she came to a show in L.A. and we just got it done, man. She's such a down to earth, solid person that it just makes working easy. Not to mention she's such a dope singer.
0: On the album, Paul, there's a song called Buy Back the Block. And I was interested in that song because it feels political. It feels like social commentary. It feels like a political statement. Can you talk about what led you to create a song like this?
1: Yeah, my family owns uh, Buddy Bolden's childhood home here in New Orleans. And Buddy Bolden is the guy who is credited as the founder of jazz music. I mean, he planted the seed that King Oliver ran with and Louis Armstrong credited King Oliver as the first person he heard play it. So it goes right back to Buddy. And I was, you know, I'm renovating that and creating a like a clubhouse for kids and a museum for him. And when Nipsey passed though, when Nipsey Hustle passed, I felt even more of a responsibility to like make sure that I'm... Investing and not just money, but time and attention to my community, and really build it in a way not chasing other areas, but chasing right where I'm from. And you know, I think it goes back. The reason I wanted it on the record is because I think it goes back to what my theme is on this whole record, which is being authentically yourself and being comfortable in yourself. And sometimes people try to run away from their hoods and and live in a better place uh, instead of trying to make where they are better. And um, I was really moved by Nipsey Hussle. I, I didn't know him personally, but his story and his what he left, the jewels that he left, uh, I just felt compelled to kind of create an anthem for getting us all together and trying to get our communities where they're supposed to be. And
0: your kids contributed to uh, Paul, didn't they?
1: Yeah, yeah, both. Uh, well, actually, Ja'Kai, Payton and P3 were on the background of Buy Back the Block. And then Peyton and P3, my youngest, are on The Beginning of Kid Again. yeah.
0: How has uh, being a dad influenced the way you think about your art?
1: You know, I think it's more influencing me as a person. Like I just realized that it's not just me. People call me a workaholic. I think I've always been a workaholic, but now it became being a workaholic, like with purpose, you know, and um, I think that just overall contributes to the way I create and also I want to leave something for them that they can be proud of. So, when I'm thinking, and this doesn't happen now, but when I used to think of, you know, strategies or something that I could do quickly, or let me do this trap song because I could produce it, you know, that's the gift and curse of being able to be a producer. If I wanted to make beats that I felt were popular, I could or something like that. But it's more important to me to leave a legacy for them of something that they can be proud of and look back on what I've done and can be proud of that.
0: I did want to know, because you've been an artist for a while, like, have you seen, I'm not trying to call you old, I am interested in people who were artists like before the internet was the way it is today, like before social media, before like, things can just change so quickly. And you were like legitimately in the industry before that happened. Can you feel the difference? Like, is it something that's like a legitimate feeling?
1: Absolutely. I was kind of right at the beginning of social media, though. So I don't really know it as an artist before social media. You know, MySpace was my first thing. So that was the start of it, you know, and it was the start of the the direct connection. I mean, before MySpace, I was like trying to talk to labels traditionally um, and every label turned me down. And so social media allowed me to get directly to these people. And um, because MySpace was infused with you being able to put up music and, you know, converse with people based on that, that's how I started to build my fan base. So I think it's why some people or I can just speak to myself specifically, but it's the reason I've been able to survive through this change of the industry. Because some of the artists who were there before social media and depended on the machine and everything, they weren't able to thrive when it started to get spread then and they had to get direct to these people. Some of them wanted to be, you know, uh, mysterious and, and not be online. And and they realized that people could just stop caring about them if they're not online. I was right on the cusp of the new school. So I have to credit social media for My career, really, because it allowed me, um, you know, being independent is cool now. But when I was independent, it was not the cool wave. You know, it was out of necessity when I did it. And the only way that I, I was able to do it and know where my fans lived and all that stuff, all that direct marketing I did just because I didn't know any better. And that was the only way I could do it. I love it. That's dope.
0: As we come to a close, I want to ask a couple questions that we ask everybody. One is, um, what do you say to people who are really struggling with hope in moments like this, right? People who they've done it all. They protested, they called, they emailed, they testified, they did all the things, and the world still hasn't changed in the way they wanted it to. Like, What do you say to those people?
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel that myself sometimes. And I wrote a song on this album called Don't Let Go. And um, that's really speaking to that because I know it starts off by saying, I know it seems so hard and you don't know what it all means, but please just don't let go. And that's all I can say right now is, you know, for it to be this dark, there's got to be light on the other side of this. And uh, for me, I just look internally and and right around me, you know, because sometimes the world is so big and seems so big. And that's such a big undertaking. So I start to focus on my family and making sure that my family's tight, you know, and that we're good and that we're loving each other as much as we can and that we're doing as much as we can for each other. And I just imagine that. That continues. You know, I show love to one and then the one shows love to the other. Aside from the action that, you know, we got to continually do. I think taking care of home is is important. And that's what we got to focus on, you know, because I tend to want to focus on the things that I can control instead of the things that I can't because that can be a frustrating road. So I would say to focus on the many things that you can control and uh, and we'll get through it. And
0: then what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you?
1: Not to focus on money. I was a young producer and a mentor of mine, Tommy Sims. He wrote Change the World for Eric Clapton. I kind of had gotten a big head, and I was like, man, they won't even pay me my fee. And he was like, you're definitely supposed to get what you deserve, but that is not always the focus. You got to think about what the move means and what the perception of the move means and what you're putting into the world And those checks will come. Those paydays will come if you just are doing what you're doing genuinely. And I I really stuck with that because I've also made some moves where I did things for a check and felt horrible afterwards. So that's one thing that that's really stuck with me. Boom.
0: Well, PJ, thanks for joining us today on Patsy the People. Everybody go check out PJ. Follow him. He's the man. We love PJ. And uh, stream or buy Paul.
1: Thank you, DeRay. I appreciate you, man.
0: Well... That's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.